I talk to non-believers and believers alike, young and young at heart, and I hear it echoed repeatedly. Why is our culture is moving and changing with such speed, almost speed of lightning? The other day I was talking to a businessman, a prominent businessman who not, does not claim to be a Christian, and he was just saying it with passion. What happened? What is happening? Why is this change that used to be year to year, now is almost week to week, and not only in our culture, but seem to be globally as well? I know there are some people who are confused by this, speed of change, others who are uh, frustrated by it, and uh, sadly, so many people, even within the churches, they resigned to it, and they said, well, you know, this is just the way things are, and they might as well, if you can't fight it, just join them. As a person who has spent many years in being academically trained to spot cultural trends and changes, I can understand the frustration. But as a student of the Word of God, I can tell you, I'm so grateful to the Lord that He has given us clues as to the times in which we live. Turn with me, please. Revelation 15 and 16. At the very beginning of the forming of God's people, the kingdom of God, the That's what a kingdom is. It's God ruling over Israel. At the very beginning, there was a public confrontation between God and Satan. Give or take 4,000 years ago. And the Bible tells us that at the very end, there's going to be a far greater cosmic, global confrontation between God and Satan. History repeats itself, really makes sense. In the beginning, the book of Exodus, we see a dress rehearsal for what is going to happen globally. Uh, in, the, in the book of Exodus, happened in the beginning of time and in Revelation is going to happen at the end of time. History repeats itself in the beginning and in the end. The first public confrontation with Satan was to free God's people physically from the slavery of Egypt. In the last confrontation, is going to free God's people from spiritual bondage and suffering and pain. Uh, the first confrontation with Satan, God brought about uh, plagues that plagued a locality, Egypt. But in the last confrontation... These same plagues that God is going to bring upon the Antichrist and and all of those who follow him globally. And after the seven plagues are unleashed, John said something absolutely incredible. He said, the wrath of God is completed. It is finished. It is done. Question, how is this going to happen? Here we see in heaven, in the presence of God, John sees sea of glass mingled with fire. But he also sees something that is so wonderful. He sees the believers who have conquered the beast at the Antichrist 
are standing victoriously beside the sea of glass. The imagery that John gives us here is stunning. It's stunning, to say the least. These images are derived from the book of Exodus. When God's people have crossed between the two parted waters of the Red Sea, they sang a song of praise. They called the Song of Moses. It's a song of praise to God. You see, that image is going to be repeated in heaven in a far, far, far greater way and more stupendous way and more global way. Uh, It is the image of all the believers, including you and me, who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We are the ones uh, who have been delivered from Satan. Harassment will be singing victory song uh, over Satan and his demons. In the Bible, Pharaoh is a symbolic type of Satan. And the Antichrist, of course, is Satan's tool. Pharaoh was the slave driver, the tyrant, the oppressor of God's people, who is a type of Satan. And God delivered his people from Pharaoh's clutches. And we too are going to be delivered from Satan's clutches. We already delivered here and now, but we will completely and fully and spiritually and eternally be delivered from his clutches by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be in a state of continuous celebration, a state of continuous thanksgiving, a state of continuous praise, so you better get a head start. In this song, there are five characteristics or attributes of Jesus. Don't miss them. He's the creator. Great and amazing are your deeds. Secondly, he is the just and trustworthy judge. Just and true are your ways. Thirdly, he alone is worthy of all of the worship. Fourthly, he alone is holy. And finally, he is omnipotent. He is the king over all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is Lord of over all the nations. And in the last verse of chapter 15, verse 8, we see the temple of heaven opens, and seven angels with seven bowls of judgment come forward. God's glory and power symbolized by the smoke-filled room. Always in the Bible, when God is present in a very special way, there's a smoke. Do you remember when Solomon was dedicating the temple? There came a smoke. They couldn't see each other. And we see it again in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. He said there was so much smoke and surrounding representing the presence of God. In this similar way, in Exodus 19, when Moses was ascended on Mount Sinai and he met God and on the mountains, the mountain itself was wrapped with smoke symbolizing the presence of God. Look with me, please, at chapter 16, the book of Revelation. The one thing, if you read this passage closely, if you read it intently, you discover the speeding of the pace of the judgment of God. It almost moves so speedily make your head swing because, see, God has been patient for so long. 
And make no mistake about it. God has been patient. God is being mocked and being insulted by humanity. God has been reviled and rejected by humanity. God's people have been persecuted and killed by evil people. And through it all, God is patient so much so that some believers even saying, God, where are you? You see, God is constantly entreating people to repent and believe in him. He may be entreating some of you here today, or some of you are watching around. But then the day is coming when God's patience is going to come to an end. And when the final day of judgment arrives, events are going to move very swiftly, very fast. The seven angels with the seven balls will go forth in obedience to the command of God. And the angels pour the seven balls of God's wrath upon the non-believers. Chapter 16 of the book of Revelation is the most tragic chapter in the whole of the Bible. Why do I say this? Because in it we see the ultimate collision between God's justice and man's disobedience. By that time, the door of forgiveness is latched shut. The wrath of God is poured out. No retreat. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter tells us that God longs for people to repent and come to him. He did everything possible to make it possible for people to repent and turn to him and believe in him and receive his salvation from the cross of Calvary. God does not want people to perish. He longs for them to repent. But he will not overrule their free will. And so finally, after all of the pleading, after all of the cajoling, after all of the entreating of people to come to him and repent, all that comes to an end. And so the first angel pours out the first bowl. And all of those who worship the beast, that antichrist, are afflicted with malignant sores. This, beloved, is the globalization of what took place in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 to 12 in Egypt. The second angel pours his bowl upon the sea, the waters of the sea, and the water becomes red like blood. And every living sea creature dies. Again, this is the globalization of what happened in Exodus 7, 17, and 18 when God turned the water of the Nile into blood. And with all of the oceans dying or die, sea life will become extinct. Then the third angel pours his bowl on the rivers, on the springs. That's the drinking water. And all of the drinking waters turn into blood. And here, the angel gives an explanation as to why water turned into blood. Please listen carefully. As if to say that all of those who have shed the blood of the saints, those who did it actively and those who did it silently, silently they have nothing to drink but blood. The Bible 
is very clear. And the Bible said that God is not mocked. What man sows, man shall reap. Unless that man or woman or boy or girl run to the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary on the cross to be their only cover from the wrath of God. The fourth angel pours out his ball upon the sun, and the sun burns more fiercely, scorching the earth. Here's the irony. With all of that pain, humanity refuses to believe. They refuse to repent. At that point, people will even curse God for their suffering. Sometimes I imagine the atheists, particularly in the agnostic, you know, the, the, the atheists who are constantly fighting, and now they're even spending money fighting a God that they believe he does not exist. It even thought of the irony. And the fifth angel pours out his ball and directly at the throne of the Antichrist. His entire satanic empire is going to plunge into darkness. All of those who worship the Antichrist will be gripped with panic. Imagine when it is as dark as midnight and at, at, at noon hour. The terror is so great that they will chew their own tongues. And yet, they will blaspheme God for the suffering that they brought upon themselves. Again, this will be the globalization of Exodus 10, 21 to 29, when the people of Egypt plunged into darkness. You heard me say from this pulpit many a times that the Old Testament is basically the foreshadowing of the New Testament. And so the darkness, the physical darkness that was experienced by the people of Egypt is a symbolic representation of the spiritual darkness that the whole world is going to experience. Jesus placed the believers in this world not only as salt to keep it from rotting, but he also called them the light of the world, that we are the light of the world. But when the believers are taken out of this world, the light of Christ will be removed. And the people of the earth will stumble in darkness hardening their hearts toward God even more. The sixth angel pours out his ball on the river Euphrates. Its water dry up, preparing the way for the invasions of the kings of the east. This is very highly symbolic. That's why you need to understand it and understand the, language, the Bible language. What does it mean for the Euphrates to dry up? It means that the conditions have become ripe for the satanic forces to be unleashed. You say, Michael, is it going to get worse? Yes. The Euphrates is the natural boundary established by God. And by drying up the river, God erases that boundary. By now, evil forces in the world are unleashed. So, who are these kings of the east that John is talking about? They are not human beings. These are not kings and rulers as we know a king and a ruler of a, a human being. These are demonic rulers. The Bible tells us that certain nations and certain kingdoms 
They have kings and have princesses that are invisible. These are demonic forces in the, in the, in the spiritual hierarchy of Satan's kingdom. These are one of the highest people in that hierarchy. In fact, you find that very uh, spelled out in Deuteronomy 32. You find it in the book of Job. But more clearly, you find it in the book of Daniel chapter 10. That is why Moses said to the people of Israel, he said, The Lord rules over you. You do not have one of those demonic powers as a prince over you. You have Jehovah as your ruler. But all those other nations, they have demonic ruler. They have a demonic invisible prince. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, he calls the demonic king that's ruling over Persia, the prince of Persia. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, the messenger refers to the prince of Greece. That is the evil king, spiritual king that's ruling over Greece. In Psalms 56 and 82, refers to the demonic powers of nations. These invisible rulers in many countries today, these are demonic kings, they're demonic princes. We spent one trillion dollars, but more important than the dollars, thousands of precious lives in trying to bring the Persian Gulf into order and look at it now. Who dominating the Persian Gulf? Iran, the old Persia in the Bible, is in control of many client states and the number is growing every day. Lebanon and Syria, Iraq, and, and now Yemen, and, and they're all falling in line and rapidly expanding. Their number one aim is to destroy Israel. Could it be that the Iranian leaders are controlled by the same demonic prince of Persia that Daniel talks about in, in, in Daniel chapter 10? Can there be any question? Revelation chapter 9, John tells us that God orders the angel, and the angel releases the four angels that are bound in the great river Euphrates. Revelation 9 and Revelation 16 here talking about the same thing. It, it, it was, it's, it's, it's the same event. When these four angels are released, the river Euphrates are dried up. Revelation 9, 16, John makes a very intriguing statement. Listen carefully. He said, the number of the troops that was there was twice 10,000, 10,000. And then he says, I heard the number. <laughs> 200 million soldiers. 200 million. <laughs> and John finds it as, as amazing and shocking as we do. In fact, John finds this to be incomprehensible. And, and that is why he reassures us. He said, I heard their number. As if to say, I know. I can hardly believe it myself. But that's what I heard. Now, there are no nation or nations. All of the armies of the world would not come up to 200 million. In fact, there were not 200 million people in the population of the world in the time of John. China, with all of its might and power and size and everything else, only have 2 million 
soldiers in the army, in their army. That's 1% of the army John describes here. And that is why this massive number of soldiers can only be demonic forces. But there's another symbol here regarding the Euphrates that I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss. The Euphrates is the cradle of civilization. See, that's where the Garden of Eden was. And that's where they were trying to build the Tower of Babel. The Babylonian Tower. It's the cradle of civilization. And therefore, at the end times, it's going to be the grave site of the civilization. The next thing John sees is that out of the mouth of the unholy trinity, that is the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, comes three unclean spirits or demons who appear as frogs. Frogs in the Bible are a symbol of uncleanliness. In Persia, frogs were agents of plagues and evil. Among the Jews, frogs are messengers of Satan. These are evil spirits that deceive humanity. Those demons will fight in the final battle of Armageddon. But right in the middle, listen carefully, right in the middle between ball number six and ball number seven, we saw that in the trumpet, six and seven, there was an intermission. Here, between six and seven, the Lord inserts a parenthetic statement. But it's a powerful one. I don't want you to miss it. A parenthetical message, if you like. Verse 15 of chapter 16. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes on him so that he may not go naked and shamefully exposed. Now, I know people say this is a warning, but to me this is one of the greatest encouragement. It is a great encouragement. Let me tell you why. It's, it blessed me. How? Is it saying, as the world plunges into moral and spiritual darkness, you keep on trusting God. As the world becomes morally bleak, stay on the light of Christ. As the presence of moral darkness becomes unbearable, you hold on to Christ's righteousness. He is coming when the world least expecting him. He is coming when the world is in its drunken stupor. He is coming at the time when even those who might profess to be Christians are denying his moral absolutes. Take heart. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 42 to 44. And that's precisely what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. That's exactly what Peter said. He said the same thing in 2 Peter 3, 10. Let me tell you something. When the Bible said the same thing three times, you can take it to the bank. The day of the Lord will be like a thief in the night to those who are spiritually asleep. <laughs> but to those who are always alert and sober, those who are ready, those who are waiting, it's going to be a great day. Well, after this interlude, the seventh ball, the seventh angel brings the seventh ball. 
and he pours it in the air. And as soon as he does, a voice from heaven says, it's done. It's finished. It's complete. There's flashes of lightning, crashes of thunder. There is earthquake like never been experienced before. The Richter scale will never be able to even measure it. Uh, islands is going to sink into the sea. Mountains are going to crumble. Massive hailstorm will fall from the sky, will crush people to the ground. But all of this destruction is only a warm-up to Armageddon. The term Armageddon is thoroughly abused, particularly by Hollywood. And a lot of people in the media, you know, Armageddon this and Armageddon that. But you need to understand this is a serious matter. It's a serious matter. Armageddon has many theories and many interpretations. But two main ones among most Bible-believing theologians, two main ones. The first is that Armageddon will be a literal battle and a literal war and is going to be the ultimate of all wars and is going to be armies from all over the world gathered on the plains of Megiddo in Israel where wars have been fought for many generations and that's why it's symbolic. And that there will be the bloodiest battle in all human history. The second main interpretation is this. This battle of Armageddon is a symbolic battle. That it is a spiritual battle. That demonic forces will war against the believers. But those redeemed, resurrected believers will follow their commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the spiritual battle that fought on spiritual plane. Take your pick. You're not going to lose your salvation. (laughs) Whichever way you choose, whichever interpretation you take. The one thing I ask you not to do is don't fight with each other over these interpretations. (laughs) Christians have done that shamefully through the years. Keep your powder dry for battling the enemy of your soul, not one another. All I know for certainty is this. God's agenda is perfect. God's plan is perfect. God's will is perfect. And no matter what happens, I know that we are on the winning side. 2,000 years ago when our Lord Jesus Christ hung on that cross, he cried out and he said, it is finished. And here in Revelation 16, the angel of the seventh ball said, it is done. (laughs) Jesus paid the price for our redemption. He does and will triumph over Satan. Even when it appears that Satan has the upper hand and evil seems to be running wild right now. Don't be deceived. For because Jesus wins, we win. Because Jesus is triumphed, we triumph. Because Jesus is glorified, we are going to be glorified with him. Revelation is a book about the past, the present, and the future. And I wanted to tell you a true story from the past to help us in the living in the presence in the light of the future. Back in the 1800s, before the invention of the telegraph, <laughs> England communication system 
called semaphore line. How this semaphore worked is uh, uh, they used flags, uh, uh, sig- singling with and, and telescopes. And the message would go from tower to tower to tower, all the width of the country. And so in July of 1812, Duke of, the Duke of Wellington led his cavalry and infantry into a fierce battle against the French in Salamanca, Spain. The news of the battle was delivered to the naval port of Plymouth, England. The commander of that port at that time in Plymouth was a man by the name of Captain Robert Calder. Captain Calder took the message from the courier and he climbed up the semaphore tower thinking this is too important to assign it to one of his officers. So he climbed himself up to the tower and he began to communicate the message, signaling to the next tower, which is supposed to go to the next tower, then to the next tower, until the the message reached 200 miles away to London. Captain Calder began transmitting the message in code. Wellington defeated. And right at that point, Fog rolled over the port of Plymouth for most of the day. And so when the words Willington defeated were sent all the way to London, the population of London literally panicked. Uh, Businessmen were literally dumping their government bonds and, and, and people lost money. It was a very dark day in the history of London if you read about it. They all became very, very bleak, black. Willington defeated. Hours later, the fog lifted, and Captain Calder transmitted the rest of the message. Wellington defeated the French in Salamanca. The news of Wellington's defeat turned into victory. The despondency turned into celebration. The doom became joy. Now, beloved, please listen to me as I conclude. This is how it is right now in a far, far, far greater way. Because this is eternity we're talking about, not a temporary setback. Jesus won the victory and Satan is a defeated foe. Never surrender in pain and suffering. Never. The Lord declared it is done. Be sober and be vigilant. Your complete victory is on its way. We read in Revelation 22, 12, and it says, we win. Your reward is as sure as Jesus himself is sure. Your faithfulness will be rewarded. Your steadfastness will be recognized. And your sacrifice will be adequately compensated. Now, amen belongs here.